This is the Defense Tech Builders Show, brought to you by Fortify. Each episode features interviews with technology builders, investors, and industry thought leaders to explore what the future of defense technology holds. Now, here's your host, Josh Martin, co-founder and chief product officer of Fortify. Hey everyone, thank you for listening. Today I'm speaking with Bob Ackerman, founder and managing director of Allegis Cyber Capital, as well as co-founder of Data Tribe. Bob, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Joshua. So let's dive in. In 1995, you founded a company that would eventually sell to Cisco for over 300 million. Take us back to 95 and the founding of your first company. So this is a company called Infogear, and Infogear gets credit or blame, depending upon who you're talking to for the creation of the original iPhones. And so we built that company, classic Silicon Valley, you know, startup company back principally by uh, NEA. But I was wondering, as we got a lot of work with the National Semiconductor, I was walking around their labs and they had a, an internal Skunk Works project that had a 8-bit processor with a small operating system and a micro browser that they had developed. I saw that and I immediately latched onto it. I said, that's the future. And out of that, we grew what became known as uh, the iPhone. And so we built uh, a couple of generations of iPhone. Obviously, the devices were not wireless at that point in time, just because the technology wasn't there. But they were, if you look at the architecture of what we think of as iPhones or smartphones today, it was the same. Basically, uh, you know, thin client server-based touchscreen controls. You know, the use case was if you could use an ATM telephone, you should be able to use one of these devices. Uh, had full internet uh, connectivity, ability to navigate the internet and uh, transact. So we built two generations of that product. We actually owned the trademarks iPhone. We actually had a prototype for an iPad that uh, we owned the trademark iPad as well. And the core intellectual property for the integration of web and telephony. We sold that company in May of 2000 to Cisco, which promptly did nothing with it, unfortunately, until a few years later when Apple decided to uh, build its iPhones. And in the process, of launching uh, the Apple iPhone, they they tripped all over our intellectual property and trademarks and patents, and that led to a little bit of a dust up between Apple and Cisco. But they sorted that out, and you know the rest is kind of in the rear view at this point in time. What was it like operating in the Valley back then? It's a very very different world. I spent a lot of my career in the Valley, and there was a lot more original creativity, in my personal opinion, than we have today. You know, the origins of the Valley really were built on semiconductors. And then, you know, there was a lot of derivative work that was built on that semiconductor foundation, which really is what kind of breathed life into what we think of as Silicon Valley today. You know, as I say, I think the environment was, from my perspective, a little more creative at that point in time. It was people really creating entirely new industry sectors. I think we do less of that today. There was a lot more research and development. I think today, a lot of what we do is applied development as opposed to core R&D. So it was, it was a very stimulating place, great place to be. Uh, loaded with creativity. You know, if you go back to, you know, the middle of the 80s, kind of when I was uh, beginning my career, early 80s, the uh, venture capital ecosystem really wasn't enamored with software. It was much more of a hardware-centric community. Uh, I remember when I was running my first software company, the, even my good friends of the venture community said, you know, Bob, software, not really sure about that. The assets all have legs. They go home at night. And <laughs> my, my response was, you know, any startup, the assets all have legs and they go home at night. So, Work in process, sitting in a warehouse someplace should not give you a lot of comfort. You need to look at operating efficiency. You need to look at gross margins. And 
when you begin to look at the world through that lens, all of a sudden software becomes very, very interesting. And, you know, and software really is how the innovation of hardware finds its way to solving problems in the market. And so I was very, very early into the software side of the equation. And, you know, obviously the environment has, has enlarged and evolved considerably over the last, you know, three, four decades. But uh, no, it was a great place. It was incredibly stimulating. What was the transition like from operator to investor? My personal transition was encouraged by, I had worked with two venture groups, Sequoia Capital and NEA, and both of them really encouraged me to look at jumping into venture. In fact, the early Sequoia guys offered to partner with me to get me into venture. And I have a really strong bias, particularly as it relates to early stage venture, that early stage venture capitals really better be operators. They're much better as investors if they have an operating background. I tell people all the time, unless you've laid awake at two in the morning wondering how in the hell do I make payroll next month, you're just not going to get it. And it's something that you don't learn in business school. I taught at Berkeley, the MBA program for five years. I can tell you, we don't teach this stuff. These are things that you need to live through. You need to experience. And, you know, the transition for me was having been on that entrepreneurial journey a number of times, I understood the process and I understood where you could get into trouble. You know, I had a familiarity with the landscape. And so that was part of the value that I was able to bring to an entrepreneur. It's like, I have sat in your chair. I have confronted the issues you're confronting. I know what it is to be worried about cash flow. You know, mm-hmm. I understand the pressures of financing. And I think that's part of the value that I brought. I think the biggest challenge I had, quite frankly, it was in making the transition from being a principal operator as a founder slash CEO to being a venture capitalist sitting on a board. You can't reach across the table and grab the steering wheel. Now, that is not your job. Your job is to be a mentor and to be a coach to be able to draw on your experience, both good and bad, to help smooth with the past by the entrepreneur that you're working with. You know, I tell entrepreneurs all the time, look, building a startup is like running through a minefield naked in the middle of the night. The chance of getting through is pretty damn remote. And so my worldview today is a good venture capitalist is like a map through that minefield. You know, they help you get through the minefield, get through intact, minimize the number of mistakes and errors so that you could preserve capital you can accelerate your cadence and have a higher probability of being successful. You know, one of the criticisms I have of the venture committee today is we don't have the number of operators we once had. Most venture capitalists in the early days were all operators. They all had operators. You know, Sequoia guys, the founders of Sequoia Capital were all semiconductor guys. They're all from Fairchild Semiconductor. They were hardcore operators. They knew how to build a business. They understood the risks. They knew how to mitigate the risks. And I think that experience and that perspective is absolutely invaluable to next generation entrepreneurs who are traveling that path. And I think we've gotten a little bit away from that. You know, as venture has scaled in terms of capital being deployed, I think we have lost the quotient of operating experience, which I think is unfortunate. That's well taken. And on that note, can you tell us more about Allegiant Cyber Capital, Fund Thesis, the team, notable portfolio companies, et cetera? So I'm a cybersecurity guy. So everything I do is focused on cybersecurity started what is now Allegis Cyber in 1996. And the real metamorphosis of, of what we are today began in, in 2000, when we began to make cybersecurity investments. You know, my background is computer science and mathematics. I am more classically an operating systems guy, so I'm kind of a deep tech you know, system software guy. And so I was naturally attracted to cyber because of the complexity. You know, I found it, quite frankly, much more interesting than application software, taking nothing away from application software. 
It's kind of where the rubber hits the road. But cyber had a level of complexity that kind of satisfied my intellectual curiosity. And so Allegis uh, began making cyber investments, so what, 23 years ago now in 2000. You know, we've been successful in cyber over the years. We were actually the first dedicated cyber venture firm in the world. Going back about 10 years ago, I made a decision to focus our investment uh, activities 100% on cyber. That was really driven out of conviction that cyber, like life sciences, I don't think you could do it part-time. It's too complex. It moves too quickly. Uh, you really have to be a domain master. You can't be a tourist. And so, uh, you know, based on success in cyber, we made a decision to go all in, to focus the firm exclusively on cybersecurity. As I said, we were the first firm in the world to do that. And then subsequently raised the first dedicated cyber venture fund. So our team today is, is pure play focused on cyber and related data science. And we've had a really good run. Off of the Allegis platform, we, we got to a place because of our domain expertise where we were beginning to identify where there were gaps in the marketplace or there would be gaps in the marketplace. Basically, the ability, you know, as a result of the experience to identify where the puck was going to be as opposed to where the puck is. And that led us to a couple of plays. Number one was a realization that cyber, unlike any other technology, there is an offense. It's an active offense. It's technically quite capable. It wakes up every morning looking for ways to compromise and manipulate systems to achieve whatever their nefarious goals are. And it's actually offense that paces innovation in cybersecurity. So we started working with teams out of the National Security Agency, particularly offensive teams, that had built that domain expertise, that thought like hackers, that we could challenge to build the defensive countermeasures to evolving cyber threats. And the second thing that happened is we got to a place where we would identify those gaps in the marketplace, and we concluded to start building companies from scratch. If we couldn't find it in the marketplace, you know, the Allegis team all have operating backgrounds. We saw, we'll just go start the damn thing. And so a little bit of a departure from traditional venture. And we started a company, uh, CyberGRX and third-party risk related to cyber. And kind of out of that experience and, and our experience working with teams out of the NSA, there was a convergence that really forced us to think about a new way of doing things. You know, I got to a place seven years ago where I can no longer bring teams from Maryland to Silicon Valley. The economics just weren't going to work. And so if I was going to continue that playbook, I had to figure out how to build things in Maryland. And at the same time, we wanted to start building more companies, and we weren't going to do that in Silicon Valley. So we started a platform in Maryland called Data Tribe. We described Data Tribe as a foundry. I like that metaphor, you know, basically pulling raw ingredients together and forging them into things of greater value and greater utility. And that's what we do at Data Tribe. And Data Tribe is located in Maple Lawn, Maryland. And our mission there is to basically work with deeply technical founders. I call them domain masters coming out of national intelligence, leveraging the massive investments national intelligence has made in developing advanced technical capabilities and, you know, basically leveraging that expertise to start cutting edge companies in cyber and data science. And so we start three companies a year. You know, we're not an incubator. We actually partner with founders who have great technical backgrounds, may have no business experience, but they've got technical mastery. And then we have an operating team that have all got three to five startups behind them all with engineering backgrounds, a lot of Carnegie Mellon and MBAs. And that team basically embeds with the entrepreneurs that we work with to leverage their domain expertise into a product vision, a product roadmap, early validation to get those companies ready for the marketplace. And so if you look at some of the things out on the East Coast, Dragos and Industrial Control Security is a company that we started with uh, Rob Lee and his co-founders in Vail and homomorphic encryption. 
Strider and counterintelligence, you know, very cutting edge, one of a kind, really ahead of the curve, you know, companies. And again, they're all based on an offensive perspective and understanding that there's a path from offensive innovation to mainstream threat environment, paths about four to six years. And so we try and identify those threats very early on again, where's the puck going to be? And then build companies to intercept the puck, you know, four to six years down the road. And it's been a very, very successful program for us. That's fascinating. I like what you said about offense often setting the pace for innovation. And I imagine a lot of the work that you're doing, especially with the national security agencies, has brought you closer into working with the DOD. And one of the things that I've noticed, and I think it's been commented on in, in many different channels, is that there seems to be a shift. For many years, VCs weren't interested in backing defense tech or working with companies in that domain. Why do you think that's the case? And how are you seeing that change today? Well, I think there's been an evolution over time. And I'm going to give Donald Rumsfeld some credit here when he was a secretary of defense. And he really, I think, realized that the government was going to be at a significant competitive advantage if it was having to develop everything itself. It would just consume larger and larger components of available capital. It would introduce delays into a marketplace where the pace of innovation was actually accelerating. So Rumsfeld really kind of embraced the concept of commercial off-the-shelf technology and began a path in terms of how do we collaborate with the innovators outside of the military industrial complex? How do we leverage what they're developing and integrate it into our plans? And you see subsequently, for, you know, InQtel being developed and entering into the marketplace met with a lot of skepticism early on from Silicon Valley, you know, the old Ronald Reagan quote of, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help. You know, so when InQtel showed up in Silicon Valley, it was, no, we want to be partners, we want to work together. There was a lot of skepticism that met them, I think, uh, through persistence and great leadership and some really good people. They demonstrated not only their sincerity, but their capability and really began to get people thinking about maybe there was a sea change, maybe there was an opportunity. And, you know, you've seen that continue through some of the DOD initiatives in terms of trying to identify innovation or innovation where it might be dual use, where they could sponsor, get involved, kind of accelerate the development curves. So I think that's on the positive side. On the negative side, the reluctance always with selling to the government is non-deterministic, unpredictable. Those procurement cycles are very complex, and they were really outside of the, the cadence around which startups were built. You know, a procurement process would be measured in years. Uh, you know, a startup is getting funded every 18 to 24 months. And so you can spend a lot of time prospecting, trying to sell into the government and have nothing to show for it when you got to your next round of financing. So there was an impedance mismatch. And I think initiatives like InQtel really began to kind of take a little of the sand out of the gears and begin to open people's eyes, not just to the opportunity, but to create processes whereby industry outside of the industrial com military industrial complex could collaborate, you know, with government and find win-win scenarios. Now, I think you look at that today, the procurement issues are still there. It is incredibly difficult for young companies to break their way through the noise to win business. But there are cases where the technologies in the private sector and there's a mandatory requirement for that capability in the government, and somehow a way will be found. You know, I'd like to see it get a lot easier because we still have a bit of an impedance mismatch. Mm -hmm. But I think people have seen some use cases. I think the government has become more open about embracing innovation coming from outside of the historic ecosystem. I think there's a realization 
that, uh, you know, look, SpaceX is a great example of how rockets and rocket systems were once developed and how they can be developed in the private sector and both what you can do from a velocity and a cost effectiveness perspective. But there are a lot of those examples. Uh, drones is another great example of where the, the really advanced, not the big, sophisticated, heavy weapon systems, but the lighter weight, more agile systems, that innovation is coming out of the private sector. And I think going forward, the model is more agility, more speed, more cost effectiveness. And I think that the government is turning to that out of necessity and the private sector is embracing it. I like the way you put the mismatch, the impedance mismatch between essentially the life cycle of an early stage startup and some of the acquisition cycles, sales cycles on the government side. And I agree with you, groups like IUT have done a great job. Quick shout out to them. We have a couple of different work programs with them and yep. everybody we speak with on their side of the table is just top notch. I'd love to get your take, your feedback, or perhaps your advice for startups who are moving into that direction on how they can better thread the needle to not get caught in a long sales cycle. Yeah, look, you've got to find a door that's partially open. You are not going to bust through a door on your own. You know, the big defense contractors, that's really their game. They've got big contracts, extended life, massive resources that allows them to farm, you know, that system. Mm -hmm. And I think when you look at innovation, I mean, the difference between classic government contractors and the innovation economy is the difference between farmers and hunters. And startups are hunters by definition. You know, every day they've got to go out, find something, kill it and eat it uh, if they're going to live another day. The big defense contractors have the luxury of farming, a luxury that startups don't have. So if you're a startup looking, you know, to penetrate the government market, you've got to find a door that's partially open. And, you know, I look at InQtel as one of those opportunities. If you can align with projects that they have prioritized, their ability to help you navigate the waters, to get you to a use case, to get you to a customer, to get you to a budget is significant. You know, DOI, you know, some of those similar programs, you know, you have the new office of strategic capital coming out of the Department of Defense. You look at rapid reaction technology office within DOD, you know, are all initiatives that were set up to identify private sector innovation, which could have a material positive impact on government mandates, particularly within the intelligence community and the Department of Defense. So I think pragmatically, you have to identify those resources and look for opportunities to align with them so that you can draft off of their relationships and their credibility within the ecosystem. Well taken. So you've got a, a unique perspective, Bob, with you know ties into traditional Silicon Valley operations outside of the greater DC area. What types of trends or, you know, what are you excited most about defense tech right now? I'm a cyber guy, right? So I have a biased view of the world, which is, you know, the entire spectrum of human behavior for better or for worse is being digitized. And that represents the cyber threat landscape. And, you know, when you get into a cyber domain, cyber really becoming the existential threat to the entire spectrum of activities that operate on a digital substrate in the digital economy. And, you know, and when things go bad, they can go bad really fast at massive scale. And so, you know, I look at that from a couple of different perspectives in terms of intellectually as a challenge. I have determined adversaries who are just as capable as the defenders, who are sometimes better motivated and less constrained in their behavior. That is a serious adversary. And so the intellectual aspect of that you know, is fascinating, it's fulfilling, it's rewarding. But again, you've got to think differently. You've got to understand 
where is the adversary likely to come at you so you can meet them there as opposed to waiting for them to show their hand and react. When you're reacting, you're losing. So cyber's got that dynamic from an intellectual perspective. But what that means, the result is the technology is incredibly complex. It is a very dynamic market. The requirement for innovation moves very, very quickly. But beyond that, we're talking about defending the platform upon which our lives, our values are built. And so there's a sort of a triple bottom line here in terms of, and by the way, all of this is important in terms of the net positive impact on society. So, you know, from my perspective, that is the focal point of my collaboration within the government. But from a government perspective, again, the fact is that you can't do it alone, right? The government turns to innovators, you know, because they cannot cover all of the bases themselves. They depend upon that innovation. You know, when you step outside of the government, innovation tends to accelerate, you know, and in an environment like cyber, the velocity of innovation is absolutely essential. A day late and a dollar short is a disaster when it comes to cybersecurity. And so I think cyber writ large is a huge opportunity for collaboration between the government and private sector. I think we're going to get into a lot of areas in and around data science where there is government expertise, but we're going to be depending on the private sector to advance that technology. When you look at things like privacy enhancing technology, things like homomorphic encryption supporting privacy-enhancing technologies, how we manage data, you know, how we manage large sets of data and maintain the security and privacy and integrity of that data at the same time. I think the mandates will come from government, but the innovation will likely come from private sector. You can go on and on. You know, space is a phenomenal example. Drones are an incredible example. Satellites are going to be an incredible example. Next generation communications. You know, these are all areas that once upon a time either came out of government labs and massive R&D contracts, or they came out of corporate labs, which largely don't exist anymore. You know, Xerox Park, you know, HCT, Bell Labs, even the universities, which were doing massive core research, a lot more of their model today is tied to applied research as to core fundamental research. And the venture community does not do pure research well at all. The ROI is too far out for the venture model to be able to see an ROI. And I think if you talk about this ecosystem, that's one of our great vulnerabilities. We are underinvesting in core research and development. And I think the only ones that are going to be able to fix that is the government. So I would call on government to significantly step up its investment in core R&D, enabling R&D, upon which the rest of the innovation ecosystem can build. And so I think we've got a restructuring of how we approach innovation in this country. I think that's exciting. I think the private sector plays a much more important role in that innovation economy, particularly as it relates to the needs of the government. Are you seeing any valuable spinouts or part of that innovation crossing the, the barrier between academic universities, research institutes into your space on the cyber side? Yeah, I think when you look at uh, spinouts, I got a fair amount of experience there. So there are universities that do an amazing job in corporate spinouts. And then there's a whole bunch of them that wish they did an amazing job to do a lousy job. And you tend to look at what are the common denominators. You know, I've, I've worked closely with Stanford and Berkeley, both phenomenal research institutions, both have incredible track records with respect to Nobel laureates. One produces a lot more startup activity than the other. You know, what's the difference? At Berkeley, what I call the coin of the realm is not an IPO, it's a Nobel prize, mm -hmm. right? 
if you go to Stanford, the coin of the realm is not a Nobel Prize. It's an IPO, right? So there are cultural biases between two, both world-class research institutions. You can't put one above the other. But in terms of what they do with that research, there's a very clear delineation between the paths that they pursue, and that's cultural. And behind part of that cultural bias is the fact that one is a publicly supported university system where when it needs money, it goes to the legislature or it admits more uh, foreign students because they pay higher tuition, whereas Stanford as a private university, you know, a little bit more of a startup, right? Has to live on what it kills, you know? And so it has a, it has a different culture. And I, a lot of that cultural difference at Stanford goes back to Fred Terman. When Fred Terman came in as the provost after being at MIT, you know, out of World War II, saying, you know, we've developed these core technical capabilities in Silicon Valley in support of the war effort. What do we do with it? We've developed microprocessors and we got microwave technology and we solved big war-oriented projects. We have this expertise, the war is over. Now what? Right? So, you know, they didn't have those government-funded R&D contracts. They had to figure out what do we do with it? You know, how do we leverage it to create an ecosystem? And, you know, I really give Fred Terman credit as the, you know, the father of Silicon Valley in terms of seeing that and encouraging that phenomenon. You know, I think MIT does a really good job. Carnegie Mellon does a pretty good job. And so there's no shortage of innovation. It's how that innovation gets into the marketplace and is encouraged to be commercialized is, I think, where the challenge is. And I think Stanford's just a phenomenal job. I think MIT does a phenomenal job of encouraging their best and brightest to develop core capabilities from an R&D perspective and then leverage them into the commercial market. I'd like to see more of that. But again, I want to see more significant investment by the government in core research and development around next generation foundational technologies. You know, NASA was always a phenomenal resource of innovation when they were having to develop the technologies that would empower the space program. You know, today, not as much. Now, today, the ecosystem's got to a place where they don't necessarily have to build it all. You know, they've got SpaceX that they can rely on. So you've got these innovation models that are always evolving, but you have to remember that, you know, you can only go as far as high as your foundation allows you to go. And that foundation is core underlying research and development. And we're under investing in that area today. I think if we can step up our investment, we can embrace some of the models that like Stanford and some of the things that NASA used to do, things that MIT does, we can unleash both the capital and the creative ability of the private sector to leverage that core R&D to reimagine and reconfigure and re-energize our economy. That's a great ending note. Just keep an eye on time, Bob. We're going to have to wrap it up here, but this has been an amazing conversation. If anyone listening wants to learn more or follow you, where should they go? Well, you can follow me on uh, on Twitter. It's got more of my political statements. You may not want to go there. Uh, oh. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, people say, I kind of say the quiet part out loud, which I probably do do, but I'm on LinkedIn, you know, just reach out, connect with me on LinkedIn, happy to talk to people, compare notes. And to the extent that any of my experience can be useful in guiding next generation entrepreneurs, I'm happy to help. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us, Bob. Josh, I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Defense Tech Builders Show brought to you by Fortify. For the latest episodes, Search our name on your podcast platform of choice or visit fortify3d.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.